Colorful, colorful, Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. Every time June appears, I reminisce about the moments I shared with my father. Mostly, I've thought about Sundays, being under the bonnet, handing him spanners and various tools. My father was the only person who felt there was anything wrong with the car. But then after washing it, we'd select some music and just chill. It was really lovely. But this June, it was different. We're older. COVID-19 is around and I can't get to see him in person yet. And it's just brought back so many reflections of my childhood in the UK, where when I was being teacher's pet, I was also being daunted by classmates telling me my mother was a end lover as my father was dark skinned and my mother was very light skinned. And then I started thinking about my previous guest, Ray Studevant, who, although being black, his skin was white and living in a black neighborhood without his birth parents, he endured racism from both cultures. If you missed the show, you can check it out on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on all major streaming platforms. On to this week's metaphor. Money makes the world go around. It was chosen by my guest, who I specifically targeted for this Father's Day episode, because I think of him as a man who is a shining example of how to parent his children. And I was extremely surprised that he would choose this metaphor. I was really expecting him to come up with something really funny. On the comedy circuit, he makes people laugh. He is a teacher, a former BBC presenter, playwright and mentor to many. I've heard the challenges facing young black fathers. And in particular, I've heard the terms whatless, deadbeat dads, and I've cringed. So it was refreshing to catch up with my friend, Jeff Schumann, who told me about his sons and life as a 50 plus Denzel Washington lookalike dad. But first, let's look into the serious stuff of Jeff's chosen metaphor, money makes the world go round. Our guest this week has chosen a quote by author and engineer Paul van der Merwe. In its entirety, it reads, Money makes the world go around. However, happiness greases the axle. Without this lubricant, life will cease. It's safe to say that the feeling of happiness has been with us longer than the concept of money has. Though humans have made various forms of currency for several millennia now, over 3,000 years, which is older than Christ. Early money was much different to how it is today. Its original intent was to act as a kind of IOU when negotiating with others. As communities established intricate trade networks, they could no longer be reliant on bartering alone. Money has taken many forms over the ages and around the world. Gold is perhaps the first object that comes to mind. But more unusual items, such as feathers, stone wheels and even teeth have also been used as a store of wealth across the ages. In ancient Egypt, people would take their grain to warehouses or grain banks for safekeeping and transfer grain to other people's accounts as a way to settle debts. 
Cowrie shells, with their attractive appearance and the ease with which they can be counted, were a particularly popular form of money in ancient times, their use stretching across many parts of Asia and Africa. With this development in trading, people soon came to the realisation that these objects could be saved up for use much later on. With this idea, we moved on to using precious metal coins. Money had to be something that was both difficult to find in the world, and like a shell, and also find something that could be carried with ease, and like a sack of barley. It was the Chinese who then brought about the use of paper notes, initially as a response to those dealing with sagging pockets. Then money went digital. Credit cards, debit cards, contactless payments, and now digital currency. All intangible forms of money that have been finding their way within modern society. It's Dogecoin. The digital currency started as a joke between two software engineers in 2013. At the time, they say they were looking for a fun alternative to Bitcoin, the world's first and biggest cryptocurrency. Dogecoin is like digital Chuck E. Cheese tokens. I'm going to get the OK Boomer from oh, not, from I, not I, understanding I, I doggy coin. We're talking about Dogecoin of all things. Dogecoin was inspired by, yes, this picture of a Shiba Inu dog. This Japanese breed of dog was already a popular internet meme. And its namesake cryptocurrency soon became the talk of online forums on Reddit and Twitter. By 2021, the coin has found its way to mainstream pop culture. Snoop Dogg, Elon Musk, and Guy Fieri have all tweeted about Doge this year. Mark Cuban talked about it on the Ellen DeGeneres show last week, and at about 30 cents a coin, says it's a better investment than a lotto ticket. Money making the world go around doesn't literally mean that life keeps on ticking because of it. Instead, it has ensured that we are all better connected due to its existence. It was the merchant traders of the past that spread a wealth of interest in ideas and inventions. Mathematics from India to better understand everything around us, paper from China to write it all down, and apples from Kazakhstan to enjoy in a moment of satisfaction afterwards. Trade routes put us on each other's maps, and this international exchange of goods has developed so vastly that we don't even think about it anymore. Think about the current pandemic and all those shows you binged. Where were they filmed? Maybe you did a few online shops, sourcing food from both local and international farms. Even those lazy day takeaways were inspired by foreign gastronomy. All of this available at your fingertips at the touch of a button. But coins and paper notes aren't really worth what they say they are, not literally. It's our collective trust that imbues these objects with their value. And even though Earth is home to 180 recognized currencies, the one that rules the roost is the American dollar. The dollar came to dominate trade after World War II. The US was the biggest economy in the world. Other countries were trying to rebuild and the dollar, it was stable and plentiful. In 1944, a conference of 44 nations agreed to peg their currencies to the U.S. dollar, while the dollar itself was pegged to gold. As global trade grew, so did the use of the dollar to conduct the world's business. Even after the United States abandoned the gold standard in 1971, the dollar remained the world's currency of choice. 
The world has gotten used to doing business in dollars because it's just easier than doing business in any other currency. The dollar is incredibly liquid, meaning it's easy to buy and sell things all over the world. The US banking system is very efficient, and those things combine to make it cheaper for businesses to buy and sell in dollars. The Republic of Molossia is a micronation situated in the American state of Nevada. The country has not yet been recognized by any government nor the United Nations. However, founder and president Kevin Bao has presided over the country since 1977. He pays property taxes to the local government of Story County, though dubbing it as foreign aid. The nation of Molossia runs to its own time, Molossian Standard Time, has its own intricate history and list of national holidays to be celebrated. Also, the Republic manages its own economy complete with a bank. The currency in Molossia is called the Valora, which is directly linked to Pillsbury chocolate chip cookie dough, meaning that you can exchange these delightful treats for cash to spend during your stay. Yes. Malasia <laughs> is not like a separatist thing or, or we have a, a problem with the U.S. government. Or, no, we just want to explore the idea of what makes a country and what can we do with that idea of, of having our own nation. It's really whatever you, as the, uh, the ruler of your, of your micronation, think that the, uh, the country should be. Whenever you enter a nation like ours, you pass through customs. This is Fred, our customs guy, and that's right, he is a mannequin. All of our civil servants in Malasia are mannequins, and that's because they don't go on strike and they don't ask for raises and take long breaks or anything like that. No complaints from these guys. Wonderful thing about the Republic of Malaysia is that it's arguably a piece of living art. This country exists because one man believes that it does. He adds the value to the land along with his currency, which he has used for the past 44 years. And if you don't believe me, check it out. Today I'm joined by funny man Jeff Schumann, who will be talking about his experiences in regards to raising two sons here in the UK. Jeff is a single parent navigating sexism, racism and his own career while showing his boys just how to do it. With Father's Day soon approaching, his message focuses on what it really means to be a father in this day and age. Coming to think of it, I don't know why Father's Day isn't as widely celebrated as Mother's Day is. All I can remember is when I was younger, it was difficult to buy my father a gift. I can't even remember what I bought him now. Jeff, it's uh, such an amazing thing for me to be interviewing you because not many people will know this, but you are responsible for me being highlighted in radio, which then took a turn in my career. So I then went into magazines and TV and everything that I do. And that was just because of a chance meeting that I had with you. And I don't know if you can remember the occasion. Can you? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I, I'm pretty certain that you're doing yourself a disservice. I was aware of you. I probably even targeted you. And because of the position that I was in, I just gave you the platform to express what I think myself and others saw. And you soared from there. I don't really think I can take credit, really. Quite often, people are talented. And like in my case, sometimes you happen to be in the right position at the right time. But I think that you were somebody that was always able, able and articulate. <laughs> 
You just needed the, the space and the platform uh, to equally and immeasurably show the talents that you had. Of course, we're looking at Father's Day. And I always look at you as when someone says black male father, you're the first person who comes to my mind. Of course, I think of my dad, but then I think of you automatically because I remember all, all those years ago, back in the day, when you were working hard, striving to look after your sons. And yeah. you always spoke about your sons and you always spoke about the good things, the things that were a bit troublesome. And it was just amazing how you went from one to the other. And now that we're looking at Father's Day, we have so many people, unfortunately, who have not been able to be guided by a father or have had a father who has not been a role model to them. And I, I thought I wanted to talk to you about being a father. Um, were you prepared to be a father? Was this something that you had planned? Uh, no, not initially, but I've been with my partner for about six or seven years at the time. And it was one of those ones, well, look, what are we doing? Kind of like, we need to start a family or get married, but we've been together long enough. And I was in my late twenties. She was a year older than me. And, and, and in all honesty, my mind or my mindset was, well, when, you, when, you, when, you go, when you're going to have children, I thought I was fortunate I grew up with my father. Both my parents were together. My father died a couple of years ago, but my, my parents had sort of 61 years of marriage. My, my, my thing was, was that I became a father having, having observed my father, but I, I wanted a bit more tenderness with my son. Because my father was, although he, his children had done, had done fairly well, he wasn't the kind of father who said, well done for getting to university. It was like, this is your duty. If you want to live in this house, you'll go to uni. And if not, then you find somewhere else to live. So I had those kind of, I had those kind of um, morals that were uh, instilled within me uh, and instilled upon me. So I, um, but I did become a father. It wasn't a routine chore. It was like, this is what you're supposed to do as a man. And these are the supposed to things that, you know, you're supposed to be able to guide the child, be a role model for the child, mentor the child, set boundaries for the child. And in my case, it was two boys who were born six years apart. I always knew what the responsibility of parenting was. And I'd like to think I did it. What have, has been more challenging for you over the years as you watch your sons grow? Oh, adolescence, most definitely, because, you know, you get to a certain age, I was always very affectionate. We want to kiss them on the cheek and whatever. They get to like 14, 15, nah, blood, nah, <laughs> I don't run no more. And you kind of think to yourself, it was only like 10 years ago, we were playing um, football in the front room and mum getting upset at things breaking and stuff and what's going on with you two. It used to be great. Um, but I, I've been very fortunate with two intellectual uh, young men um, who are, I think are culturally fairly conscious um, and so the challenges are when you try to you know the, my father never had that birds and a beast talk with me I can remember at 15 giving my son condoms 15 16 I, I noticed there was an, an interest in girls or young women I ought to say and I just thought you know what having been a youth work trainer and a tutor it's so important that the things that I try to implore within others that I, I do within my own children. By 18, my, my son was kind of calling me Jeff or dad. That's the, that's the, that's the rules that I set. Because um, you want that, for me, I wanted that level of intimacy uh, with, my, with, with, with my boys. The challenges around, you know, I never smoked drugs. They saw enough people around me and the profession that I'm in smoking. They'd be like, dad, could you smell that? And I'd be thinking to my friends, if you're going to come by me, don't smoke. 
Um, they were never allowed to smoke in my home. So, the, so there were all those kind. Of, there were all those kind of challenges, as you yourself, as a mother, would know. But I think for me, of a, as a father of a black male child, to try and instill a, a level of consciousness, a level of behaviour, a level of tolerance. I remember having um, chats with my sons because one of them made a very homophobic remark when I was, I believe, it was about fourteen. I told him. Mm-mm. That's not how you behave. That's almost as being in a different way, behaving in a fascistical way because someone is different from you. So they, they, they so I like to think that they're reasonably well grounded. Have you ever been worried as a father of you know two black boys that they would get in trouble with the law and how they would approach it? I was talking to Leroy Logan uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Uh, and of course, uh, listeners, you would know Leroy Logan um, because he has been featured as one of the um, small acts series. Right, small acts series then won the Golden Globe. And um, we were talking about the police presence in his days, which was more or less our days. Um, things have changed now. But as a father, how do you tell your sons if they are approached by law, the law in any way? how they should respond. I remember when my son was 16, he was stopped with a group of his friends. Um, and then obviously there were minors. So then myself and his mother went down to the police station. And it was ironic that one of the, one of the police officers, I had taught his sister and he remembered me. Uh, he was a bit too young to be taught by me, but he remembered who I was and whatever. I said, Truman, uh, did you, was you a teacher at Acton High School? Yes, I was. And he said, oh, you, you taught blah, blah, blah. And so the tone changed. So I then kind of worried that if, if I hadn't been in that position, for them to sort of perceive that, well, he comes from, um, must be reasonable stock because the bloke was a teacher. Uh, I am always, I have always been worried. I'd be lying if I said anything different, but it's what you tell your children and, and, and the, you know, be careful of the company that you keep. My son has got himself in minor trouble, silly trouble. Um, uh, and as, as I say, he doesn't come from a family. I've never been arrested. I've not been in trouble with the police, but this is what people, this is, but this is what happens sometimes. But it's about, give your name, be studious, comply, wait for your phone call, we move forward. Both my boys have two different personalities, Delia. The younger one, five years between them, is different from the older one. The older one's a bit more like me, a bit more talkative, a bit more dominant, a bit more challenging. Uh, the younger one isn't like that. Equally, they're both very, very smart. But I, I never had that, like the birds and bees, I never had that outrageous talk like, you know, all police are evil, be careful of blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I don't, I didn't impress those thoughts upon my two young men. But how has it also been being a father and then, you know, being very high profile? Of course, your changes from, from the, you know, theatre, <laughs> choice, the BBC, um, the plays that you're writing, everything that you do, how is that? How does that affect your relationship with your son? I remember I wrote a play about six years ago. It was really about my son and my relationship between a father and a son. My son's name is Jamal, and the central character in this play was called Kamal. And I remember <laughs> I told my son, and okay. he was like, that's not me, not me, is it? And he demanded, not demanded, but he said that, you know, so um, am I going to see a draft of it? So he started using language, like, which is technical term in scripts, like draft. I'm thinking, oh, you know about drafts. Where do you get that from? Yeah. Like, of course, it's me talking that way a lot. He knew. He took a look. It's about 10 or 12 pages. He goes, I've seen so much like me. And of course it was. But it was just because it was set in a school. And, and I, I think that you are inspired by the influences and the texture and of the people that are around you. Unless you're going to write fiction. And um, most of my stuff has been part fiction. But the teaching plays that I've written and the comedies and stroke tragedies 
have got some kind of resonance with me and some kind of character-based stuff because it's the life that I know. I hear a lot of um, fathers, black fathers in particular, saying that they wish that their sons would have more communications with them. And, I so agree. And I, I say to them, I don't know what went wrong because in our generation, we were always in touch with our fathers. We couldn't wait to speak to them or to ask their opinion. It was very important to us what they felt. And yet they didn't have that kind of closeness that we think we had growing up our children. What do you think? Yeah. Well, no, I agree. Uh, you know, the, uh, the children become what children see. I tried the, I really tried the softly, softly, gentle approach, said the encouraging things that my father never ever said to me. But still the communication, because there were four distractions. When I was growing up, there were three television channels. You know, um, <laughs> the time when I, Netflix hadn't quite arrived in their teens, but Sky was here, far more TV channels, uh, game consoles. They spent more time in their room as well. You know, I couldn't wait to go out and play in the park with my friends. And, and again, the communication with my, my, my father was minimal because I was out of the house a lot of the time when I wasn't allowed out. With my two, they'd be up in their room or rooms playing their games and I saw them at mealtime and my communication was done your homework no homework no no nothing until your room is tidy and that was the kind of the level of communication that at weekends they're both quite good at sports I was a sporting father that's that's here and where my communication was and mum had mum played her role mm. but, but communication is, is, is really the key but it is sad um because I wish and you can't take it back and I love, anyone listening to the podcast um especially with the generation, you've got to have a day for me where there's no games, there's no consoles, you know, everyone's down in a particular space together and you talk. It's easy to be a philosopher with hindsight, but that's how I feel. Yeah, I, I think many of us, uh, you know, we feel that way. If we feel that we wish that we had the knowledge that we have now, then, Absolutely. you know, but Jeff, what would you say to young men who are, growing up without a father or a father figure, you know, a mentor. They don't have these people around them. That must be hard. There were two things, Dee. Not having a father and not having a mentor are two different things. I know some men who are, and I use this term, which you won't like, who are absolutely whatless. I mean, whatless in their, in their behaviour. And sometimes I look at some of these men and I think to myself, there should be a law or there should be some sort of ruling about people who should be allowed to have children. I can remember a friend of mine teaching his son, telling him off because he, he built his spliff wrongly when the child was about 14. Oh that's not parenting. God. Yeah, but that's, what, that's the world I come from. Now, when it was, now we're talking about mentoring, well, that's off, offering a particular focus, Delia. You're, 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 you know, you've got your family, and they've got a mum that they've always seen, well, they would have seen, who's ambitious, who writes, who strives, who is strong. And that's a great grounding. But then if your children, or, or and anybody who's listening to this, if your child chooses to go in an opposite direction, it's no fault of yours. We make children, but we don't make their minds. So the difference between a father, I, I say, I can mentor as I do my godson. Now, he's not my son. He's my best friend's um, child. So I mentor him in a father-like figure alongside his own father. But I'm not his father. And for those young men who grow up not knowing a father, it all depends on the contact and the environment you come into that shapes your destiny. If you're around people who say it's all right to have five different women on the go, um, it's good not to work and whatever, your children become what children see. So you're going to be like, well, that's the way they live their life. That's whatever. But you come across like I did, some really good people in my who ran my local youth club. 
uh, when I went to do my my A levels, I came across a, a a woman who absolutely shaped my life at sixteen. Uh, in, uh, when I went to do my A levels, she absolutely changed me as a person and told me I could do a lot more than just keep on talking. And so when I did my A level government and politics, I became a different person. By the time I was seventeen, I was a Pan Africanist. By the time I'd done my degree. I, you know, I realized I've been lied to for all the years that I went to the grammar school that I went to. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know, I, all I'd had up until 16 was a Eurocentric education that dictated how I behaved. I mean, Dina, you probably find this hard to believe, but because I went to an all boys school, we used to have lockers where we used to keep our books and stuff. When I got to that school, the majority of kids had page three women. So white women's naked breasts on their lockers. So mm. what do you think I did? Exactly the same thing. Mm. That's, that's the behaviour I interpreted. My father didn't know. But my father was very clear, um, having a father, that education was important. My mother's illiterate. She illiterate in British society. Came over to work, work, and whatever, and whatever. My father was the educated person who had, in, in terms of what you call education, in terms of academia. My mum was very educated as well, but in a different way. Um, it is very hard dealing. There's no... I could sit here and invent... Well, you know, a child needs this, a child needs that. Honestly, you know, it really is like sometimes it can be the luck of the draw. If, you're, if you've are if grown up in a very tough environment, Dee, it's really, really, really hard because you haven't got that, the emphasis of someone telling you what you should and what you can be doing, Dee. It's so hard, Delia. It really is. Mentoring is another factor. That's why there are good academies in the UK that see the problem in our community, who understand that historically we've been encouraged to behave in a particular way. And um, they're in a position to do something about it. And so they set up these academies to try and offer that gap in that child's education so they won't fall into the drug trade, the knife trade, you know, the whole, the, all, the, all the things that go on in London, D, the, the negative things in that particular sector of our community is caused because of self-loathing, of lack of knowledge of self. You know, the I get looked at, D, when I say things like on a, on, in the UK, on say uh, a so-called mainstream radio station, I was asked a question not long ago about what are you kind of type of women do you like? Do you like blondes, brunettes? I went, I like women with black hair and black eyes. I like black women. My goodness, if I left the studio, the amount of people who look white people, um, if somebody white had said that and whatever, no, that's my preference. If somebody white said I love white women, that's not racism, that's the person's preference. I love black women. It's like, there's nothing, nothing. I'm not talking about anybody's relationship. I'm not criticizing anybody's relationship. You ask me about a prejudice or a preference. I like black women. What's wrong with that? How does that make me? How does that? How is, how is that racism in reverse? I, I was a teacher. I fought hard because of my own situation for the hearts and minds of black children to stop self-loathing. So we introduced African studies into the curriculum. You know, we don't come from Dominica originally. Dominica is the Latin word for Sunday. Christopher Columbus. That's what Dominica means, Sunday, Sunday people. That's why it's called that. So yeah. am I wrong to tell people that? Am I wrong to have that discussion? Yeah, no, it's, it's I don't know why it is sensitive, but it is sensitive. Absolutely. It's a very sensitive issue. And you know what? I could talk to you all day. Jeff, your metaphor, money makes the world go around. How Absolutely. Do, why? How do you use that metaphor in your life? It, money's given me freedom, and it gives freedom. I, I remember the wonderful line, uh, Rossellini, and also it's in The Godfather, to hear about poverty is one thing, to read about it is another, but to see it. And I've seen in scenarios where money has been injected, I've raised money myself, 
for the underprivileged in St. Kitts and also in the Gambia. I've gone out there and taught and I've seen that when you when you make that contribution, you compromise on not having a fear, not taking money, you can make a world of difference. If I was a billionaire, the first thing I would do, Dee, is to go into these so-called third world countries, build hospitals and build schools, but build a different type of curriculum that's not based on the legacy of empire and massa. Well, I hope you become a billionaire because we sure do need that. We sure need but, that. Money makes the world go right. It really does. You know, Bill Gates and um, guy who runs Tesla, is it Elon Musk or whatever? Elon Musk. Got more, yeah. more, more money than they can dream of. You know, the divorce that, that, Gates, that, that um, Gates, his wife, 153 billion. And she might get 50 billion. I mean, 50 billion, 40 billion pounds. You can't spend that in a lifetime. You know, you've got more than most West African economies. Amazing, <laughs> D. You've got more than more more money than a lot of economies. Um, so therefore, money makes the world go round, and, and it's painful if you haven't got it. It's a real struggle. Where do you think you learned that? From when I was a young man, as a student, when I was 14, 15, D. Uh, I went hang around with guys who were a couple of years older than me, and they, they left school at 16. And in the UK, we have a, a saying: you know, when you go out to work as an electrician or a carpenter. You go out to work on the tools. You go out. You go out to learn a trade. I was studying, so I didn't have money. D. I didn't have the designer clothes at the time. Um, I couldn't go to, to cinema or even really date. I didn't have the money. And I had a really good friend who really looked after me. I mean, he used to help me. We'd go to Kentucky, uh, and he'd like as we're going here, drop two pounds in my pocket, so I wouldn't be embarrassed. And so I realised not having money. The only time I ever had money, D, when I worked as a student when I didn't pay tax for the six-week period, and I had to save that money, dear. I had to buy books. You know, I had to feed myself at lunchtime. My father's philosophy was, well, if you don't save, obviously you want to starve. <laughs> Which means you basically got to look after yourself. I'll do the basics for you, but you're old enough to go out and get a part-time. When I was at 10, I had a paper round, and the money I got from that, I never saw it. My father, it was used to feed and clothe me. I come from, I come from like the commune um, scenario. And it did me wonders, D. It did me wonders. Because it taught me, D, that when I did earn money, D, and at the height of what I was doing, I didn't really waste it. I didn't spend £15,000 on a chain. I looked at where I was living and, 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 and what, I, what, what was needed to be done. My father taught me years ago, D, you borrow, say, £100,000 on a 25-year mortgage. When you pay that money back, you also pay back another, like, £52,000 over 25 years. Or well, What am I doing that for, D? You're almost paying back twice what you borrowed. Yeah. You get a property, D. You make, if you're making money, you pay it off as soon as possible in terms of go away. Yeah. In terms of go away. And you, you do, so no matter whatever happens, D, my father always said, if you can pay off your mortgage, if you can, he said, no one can take your house away from you. He said, he said that, you know, if they cut off your gas and electricity, you've got blankets and candles. I, did, yeah. I love that. Candles yeah. for light, blankets to keep you warm. If you can't pay, you, but when you haven't got the, the money to pay for your, your rent or your mortgage, out you go. Jeff, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Really, thank you. Appreciate and, it. And uh, I can't wait to see your sons again. The last time I saw them, oh my. <laughs> I see them, you know, on Facebook and In stuff, and I think, oh my gosh. I'll have to send you a photograph of them. Big men now. No, definitely. We are going to be talking again in the very near future sure. because uh, there's another side of the coin that I want um, our listeners to know about you. And uh, I, I can't wait for that. But for this time, okay. thank you so much, Jeff.
So now I found out one of the so-called reasons Mother's Day is more celebrated than Father's Day. It seems Father's Day wasn't recognized as a celebratory holiday almost 60 years after the first Mother's Day. But that doesn't make it less important, does it? Anyway, let's find out a little bit more about Money Makes the World Go Round. Let's remind ourselves that the phrase is not all about money. It's about joy too. There is definitely a price on happiness, an optimal and a maximum number of how much we need to live and to be truly content. And there is such a thing as having too much money. And that number is simply an unspendable amount. I'm sure you've seen stories of how the rich have gotten richer over this pandemic. Whilst many of us have struggled with uncertain features, this divide in wealth inequality has especially been stirring up tensions and movements in the USA. Posts condemning minimum wage standards are all across the social media. Or how Jeff Bezos is on track to becoming the world's first trillionaire. But at what cost? It's no secret as to how the Amazon workers have been treated during his rise to power. Amazon reaped mind-boggling profits during the pandemic, and Jeff Bezos' personal wealth grew by about $70 billion. So even if he gave every U.S. Amazon employee a one-time $100,000 bonus, he'd still be nearly as rich as he was before the crisis. Instead, he stripped workers like Jennifer Bates of the $2 an hour hazard bonus they received near the start of the pandemic. Last year, with the wave of the Black Lives Matter protests, many African-Americans called for reparations across the internet. It might sound a little strange, the thought of paying the descendants of slaves for an atrocity of the past. But when the enslaved were set free, they were denied many things that white Americans were allowed, such as pensions. Then with segregation... Black-owned businesses were, of course, negatively affected, though entrepreneurship within the communities lived on. It might not surprise you to know that the wealthiest black individuals during this time were barbers. Well, actually, I think it might surprise you to know that. It's one of those things that you, you see all the time, but you don't really think about it. Essentially, the ability to create generational wealth was made incredibly difficult for this demographic, which is something that still affects people of today. Think about it. If the U.S. government had given every slave compensation, that would have allowed them to own a home or start a business. Their ancestors would be in a much more secure place now, maybe allowing them to go to university or starting a business of their own. Instead, we have seen generation after generation struggle due to the simply unfair playing field. The racial wealth gap, is, as you know, is staggering. Uh, blacks are about 13% of the U.S. population, but only have 2.6% of the nation's wealth. And that translates into an average household differential between blacks and whites in net worth of about $800,000 in 2016 dollars. That's the gap that needs to be, uh, that needs to be closed by a reparations program. In the aftermath of the Civil War, the ancestors of today's living black Americans 
were promised restitution for their years of slavery in the form of 40-acre land grants that were never given to them. So we estimated that if you took the most conservative interpretation of that allocation, it would be 10 acres per formerly enslaved person. So there were 4 million folks who were emancipated at the end of the Civil War. So that would mean 40 million acres of land should have been allocated to them on that basis. And that's the, that's the low end estimate. The present value would probably be anywhere between four and $6 trillion. With the faces of global rulers imprinted onto our currencies, it's no surprise that money is closely linked with power. It is wealth that we can live life to the fullest. It allows us to travel, to enjoy food and a multitude of activities. However, power is not often linked to happiness. What gives us real joy comes from the people and environment around us. Even though a lot of us have gone through economic hardships over this past year, whether it's losing a job or having our businesses put on hold, we've also spent time contemplating on what really makes us happy. Walking through a forest with some friends, picnicking with your fiancé, going through those family albums, or sneaking a cheeky hug from your grandkids. Or missing it, but remembering it. Appreciating the little things in life is what's really important. And it's these things that are usually free. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Thank you to our guest, Jeff Schumann, for sharing his life as a dad and his experiences with his dad. I'm sure it brought back some memories for many of you. For me, I keep hearing that song, money makes the world go around. It's it's money, right? (laughs) I'm sure other people must have thought about that, or maybe I'm just telling my age. Anyway, don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at msdelia at deliadelore.com and we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. We depend on you to help us grow so that we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. And I'm sure you have learned so much through not just this metaphor, not just our guests, but all the shows. And don't forget, you can catch up on colorful.com. Join us for another metaphor next week. Until next week, you know what I'm going to say? Be fab, get the jab. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. Bye-bye. Join me for Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore. That's me. It's on Colourful Radio, Mondays at 9am.